Hey everybody, this is the Hair Game Podcast, and I'm Eric Taylor, your host. I want to mention something quickly before we get started. We're opening a new salon in Escondido in San Diego County at the end of July. Go to salonrepublic.com for more info. This episode is all about Maddie Conrad. Maddie will be at Lookbook this summer. I think he's doing demos, he's judging a competition, he's hanging out. And then the following day, on Monday, July 15th, he's doing a full class from 1 to 6 p.m. at Salon Republic in Hollywood. You can sign up for the class at maddieconrad.com. Now, instead of doing our normal Podloot giveaway this week, he and I came up with something really cool. One lucky person will win a free ticket to Maddie's class in Hollywood on July 15th. And then Maddie and I will take that person out for dinner and drinks after the class. How cool is that? I'm super stoked about it. I know Maddie is as well. And to top it off, the winner will get their own victory apron straight from Maddie himself. Now to enter, listen to this episode and post a video on your Instagram stories or feed about what you like most about it. Tag Maddie, tag me, and tag the Hair Game Podcast. That would be a hashtag for the Hair Game Podcast. Do that so we can find you. We'll choose the best video and announce the winner on May 27th on all of our Instagram channels and that day's podcast. Good luck, and I look forward to hanging out with you. Sitting here with Maddie Conrad, 2018 Canadian Barber of the Year. How crazy is that? 2018 Behind the Chair, Big Shot men's winner and founder of Victory Brand Prox. All of the things that you just said seem like you're talking about somebody else. Uh, that's what everybody says. Everybody says the exact same thing. It's so weird to, to, to have that stuff associated with your name and have a title like that. You know, I, I can't believe that that's an actual title for something. Like, how does one determine the barber of the year, you know? It's <laughs> you like, tell me. Nobody goes to a plumber convention and is like, <laughs> oh my God, plumber of the year, you know, Saul Rosenblatt. And <laughs> that sink that he did was just amazing. His wrench work is just unmatched. Are you, know you sure I mean? that's true? There I'm, could be a plumber community. I hope there is a plumber community, man. Craft people need to be celebrated like this, you know? I bet there's a podcast right now about plumbing and they're talking about hairdressing and they're like, you know, what do you think? The hairdressers have a hairdresser of the year? No they, way. They probably think it's the silliest thing ever. Exactly. You know, I actually have a friend that does carpentry, like a specific, really, really specific style of carpentry. And he has a YouTube page that has almost a million followers. No. And he just does like this Japanese style carpentry. He's called the Samurai Barber, or the Samurai Barber, the Samurai Carpenter. It's really funny. And uh, man, like you just would have no idea. But it's, it's it, Everything has a niche. Everything, Everything has something that someone can be passionate about. Yeah. And I mean, you, you see it when you come to shows. You know, you see it uh, when you get this many people together that all are really excited about the same thing. And it, it's weird. Like, you come here, and I say it's like, it's almost like seeing your friends from summer camp. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so many familiar artists. A lot of us do this all year long. You know, like, we're really busy. We're really we're traveling around. We're all crazy. And we see each other, and there's, like, just this real instant kinship and appreciation for, for people that share the same common passion you know Absolutely. what I mean and, and then the, the rest of the people that show up I, I kind of think of it, it's a little bit like the Muppet show you know what I mean hairdressing because I mean we are such a huge industry full of crazy personalities yeah. and big crazy hair and stuff like that and yeah. so I always wonder what like what what like normal people would think about coming to a hair show oh, and be totally. like is it kind of like you know Burning Man to them or something, yeah. you know what I mean? Probably. Like, it's, yeah, it's Probably. interesting. I should take some pictures and then go show my normal friends. Oh my gosh. See what they say. I feel like my friends wouldn't believe me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
That's true, because you're a barber, you still got, there's some normality to you. Oh, no question. Yeah. I mean, it's a craft job. It's, a, it's yeah. the old, one of the oldest craft jobs in the world, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's always been since the very inception of barbering. I mean, I'm, an, I'm a bit of a barber historian. I'm, a, I'm that nerdy guy. Um, it's always been a blue-collar job. You know, it's never in history been about the elite and the socially, you know, elite people and the, and the rich and wealthy. It's always been about taking care of the common man. And so I, I love that about barbering, you know what I mean? I love that it has humble beginnings and stays a humble profession. And I think that that's really important to, uh, moving forward, you know what I mean? Is to keep things uh, so that our head is on straight, you know? So that Absolutely. we're not getting too caught up in the trend of barbering and the rock star element that it seems to, seems to be giving people and really stays true to what it actually is, which is just a servant of the people. I love that. I love that. And while you were talking, you reminded me of an episode I did a couple weeks ago where I, I did some research on the history of hair. And because this is one thing that I've kind of been on, like from a theme, thematic standpoint, is that our community doesn't have a whole lot of history. I mean, yeah, there's Sassoon, there's this guy, there's that lady, but there's not a whole lot of history. You know, I would argue that there's not a whole lot of known history, commonly known okay. history, but okay. actually the hair industry itself has an extraordinarily deep history. I, I like to explore that in my classes a lot and share those things. And so, so where do you learn about the history then? Well, the internet is a wonderful place, you know what I mean? There's a lot of wealth of information out there and of course books and things, but where I take a lot of the stuff that I think about barbering isn't actually from the more modern interpretation. I really started from the, the foundational stuff. The, the, the textbook for barbering was written in the 1880s by a guy named A.B. Moeller. And some of the stuff in there that it shared was actually about the history of barbering and where it came from and where some of these disciplines have come from and the styles at the time uh, were very different from what they are now. And so it's, it's easy to see the transitions. It's easy to see the changes. And especially if you look as it relates to pop culture and trends, it's almost easy to put two and two together and understand how trends were affected by some of the shifting social nature uh, everything from the influence of the military in the 1930s and 40s you know when everybody's haircuts got really short largely because the the idea around shame of not going off to war or being part of the war effort you know that that changed the dynamic of the of uh, men's haircutting and, and, and certainly what guys were wearing uh, out in public um, equally the rebellious nature of the 60s meant that there was going to be the antithesis of that you know the onset the onset of the unisex hair salon largely fueled by guys like Sassoon, where all of a sudden that became in vogue and men wanted these long, different, like, and forgive me for saying, but slightly more feminine looking shapes and barbers weren't ill-equipped to deal with that. And so I see this constant pattern rotating through our industry of uh, a point where we get to inevitably a system where our ego gets in our way and the trends being what they are, just simply find a way around that and shift around and go back and forth. And we think, I think we have, or, sorry, I think we think we have more control over it than we really do but we are inevitably just reacting to social uh, status social nature social trends and things like that culture. and finding a way to yeah be relevant in a culture that that is uh, demanding those sorts of looks I love that we're talking about this so I was able to find in my notes from that episode my little tidbit it says and I wonder I'm curious if this book that you're, you're referring to said anything like this 
Um, in the Middle Ages, barbers worked also as dentists and even as surgeons. Yeah, that's you actually know, you very, oh, very much so. Yeah, that, that, the way that developed was largely because when we first became a paid profession, we were employed by the military. Alexander the Great, and we're going back to 300 BC here, he was the first military commander in history to understand that there is a tactical disadvantage to having a beard and long hair when it came to hand-to-hand -hand combat. And he was afraid that the opposing armies would grab his soldiers by the beard, drag them to the ground, spear them in the back. So he employed a whole bunch of people to cut hair and groom the soldiers that he referred to as barbers because the Greek word for hair or for beard is barba. Okay, so that's where we got the name from. And the thing is, they weren't just responsible for taking care of soldiers going off to battle. When they would come back from battle, they would be wounded, they would have injuries, and those same people were responsible for kind of dressing wounds and doing small medical procedures on the barbers that, or not soldiers to kind of get them better again. Amazing. As that progressed into the Dark Ages, we became known as something called barber surgeons. Okay, and barber surgery was this thing where we were responsible for so many crazy things. We were doing herbologies, they were doing small surgeries, dentistry. Um, lots of invasive stuff. One of the things that was most commonly done at that point was called bloodletting. Okay? Yeah. And they believed that all illnesses lived in the bloodstream. And yes. so what they would do is they would cut a person open and if you lose enough blood, you kind of get lightheaded and a little euphoric. And when that happens, you feel better. Right. And so they thought, oh my God, it works. The barber yeah. surgeons are miracle leeches. Workers. Yeah, leeches. These are other great things. So what is really interesting is the barber pole, as we know it, it's, a, it's actually an old red and white pole. And the reason we have it, it's an 800-year-old guild sign. Okay, and what a guild sign is, is something that they, back then, would have to hang outside their business to tell people what they were, because back then, people that were poor couldn't read. And the majority of people were uneducated and couldn't read English. You could put things on the side of a wall. You could write barber surgeon, and no one would have any idea what that said. And so you actually had to have a physical symbol hanging out of your business that told people what it did. And what the red and white stood for was, in fact, the blood and the bandages from bloodletting. They would have a little bowl on top where they, because they would commonly catch the blood in a bowl. They'd bottle it up and in fact sell it to people in Eastern Europe that drank human blood thinking it would Come give them special on. powers, which means that barbers are directly responsible for Twilight. Okay, because vamp like the, the movie vampire, or the TV show vampire book? lore would not exist without barber surgery because that's where it all started. Amazing. People drinking human blood, actually not drinking them out of humans, but taking it from buying it from barber surgeons. It was largely practiced in Eastern Europe. That is so awesome. Bananas, isn't it? It's I'm so, weird. so glad that we're sitting here talking about this. Oh man, <laughs> you know more about this than anybody. Well, I am one of those really like I am a person that has to understand why things, you know, especially as an educator. One of the things I found that when I started out in hairdressing um, that's really common to people in hairdressing is that we all started out as the exact same thing, um, a fraud. Every one of us. We start out as a fraud. And what's funny about that is the reason I say that, and people always seem so put off when I tell them that, but they agree with me because the thing about it is is that when we first started with our very first client out of hair school, when we got out of hair school, we were very ill-equipped to do what we do, you know? But we were expected to be professionals that knew everything. And with that first client that sits in your chair that doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't know that it's your first day, you're, you're listening to their con you know, consultation, you're asking what they want, but all you really hear in your head is, oh, holy shit, oh, holy shit, oh, holy right. shit. And when you kind of figure out what they ask for, you go into the haircut that you only know how to do. You likely know one or two haircuts at that point. You do what you know how to do with a slight variation that kind of comes more into line with what they've just asked for, right? In the middle of that service, every one of them knows how to ask one simple but completely terrifying question how long have you been doing this? They all do, like they're like bees and dogs, they smell fear and they can, see, they can see it on you. And we all do the exact same thing in that moment. We lie, 
we lie to that person. Yeah. We tell them about, I don't know, nine and a half months, like as if we, we include the day we registered for hair school as part of our experience <laughs> as a hairstylist, right? Because we're afraid. We're afraid that they are gonna know that we don't know what we're doing. And so in that moment, we all become a fraud. Okay, and all of it, it's happened to every one of us. And that generates fear, okay? So we're a little bit afraid. And the way that we kill fear is by education, by knowledge. Like knowledge kills fear, that's what it does. It's why I'm an educator now. I spend so much time, my whole mode of education is about trying to make people less afraid to stand behind their chair or less afraid of anything that might show up there, you know? And that's really how I try to approach my education. But when it came to transferring from being somebody standing behind a chair to somebody who is being an educator, there was a whole new system of fraud in place. <laughs> and I had to learn to eliminate that. And the only way I could do that was by learning as much as I possibly could about the subject I was teaching. So that anytime somebody came to me with a challenge or a question, I could give reason for why I think such. I could give reason for why I do these things. Because I believe to understand the history of a thing is to know its soul. And I think to understand the reason why, why we're doing something is to really understand it. You know? You know what I mean? And I would rather have people understand a haircut than just simply repeat a haircut that I've done. You know, that, that allows them to create their own haircuts. It allows them to create their own stuff rather than just trying to be recreative. It can empower them to be creative on their own. Right. Donald Trump sits in your chair. What do you do? Well, first of all, I want to tell him he's not fooling anybody. We all know what's under that thing. We've seen him climb out of Air Force One. It feels yeah. back. Yeah. We all know, man. You're yeah. not kidding anybody. All right. Honestly. So, so, so you're the best barber in Canada. What are you going to do? Well, uh, that's the nice thing about being the best part of barber in Canada is I know he's never going to sit in my chair. Because I'm not, honestly, I, I've seen all these memes with like different haircuts on them and stuff. And you know the funny thing about it, and, and I know this is going to be the most unpopular opinion, none of them suit him. And that's just it, like my, my goal, my endeavor with my clients is to make them look like the best version of themselves, not make them look like someone else, you know? Sure. Like everybody comes in with their girlfriend and their Pinterest picture, right? Girlfriend is always showing you a picture of Brad Pitt. Right. I want him to look like this. Right. No, not like last time. You, right. you cut his hair too short, I could see his scalp. I don't want that. <laughs> and he's looking up at you like, motherfucker, help me, <laughs> right? And you just kind of have to intercede and go, okay, cool. Like, yeah. But really, like the, the most important part of barbering is not just about doing good haircuts and doing what you think is a good haircut. Don't cut hair with your ego. It's about two components that have always lived in unison and have been the motto of barbering since the 1880s. Look good, feel good. Or sometimes it's interpreted as look good, feel better, right? A good haircut and a well-cut haircut can make somebody look good, but if they don't love it, if it doesn't suit their personality, if it doesn't bring out what they're hoping to see in the mirror, or if it doesn't make them walk taller out the door than they came in, then you've missed half of the haircut entirely. You've missed half the service, half the experience, and half of the purpose of barbering. It's not just about creating a technically perfect haircut. I see a lot of barbers out there on Instagram that cut hair with their ego. You know what I mean? And that, the one thing I'll tell you guys about this is like if any of the barbers listening out there and stuff like that, you want to get ahead in this industry, understand that your ego is an anchor. It's an anchor. It makes you stuck exactly where you are because as soon as your ego takes over, it tells you that you own this. You don't need to know more. You know more than your customer. You know more than the person who owns the hair you're cutting. You know more than everybody else. And as soon as that happens, you are slowly waiting to become obsolete and die. So for me, my goal is always look good, feel better. If Donald Trump has a haircut that I think looks ridiculous, but he loves it, feels confident and assertive with it, and that's how the style he wants to wear, then so be it. My ego has no 
dog in that fight. You know what I mean? So you if gotta have any recommendations, maybe? Oh hell yeah, I would probably. <laughs> I mean, the comb over is not working, pal. Okay, okay. it looks All more right. and more ridiculous as we go on. <laughs> My suggestion: stop trying to tear it into such a helmet. It looks like a wig that's been put on. You know what I mean? So I, I think try and make it look more like hair and use a little less hairspray. What struggles did you have early on behind the chair? Oh man, that fraud thing was a big one. Like when I first got out of school, I'll be straight, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had no idea, I was afraid. Um, I took tons and tons of classes and it's hard to know uh, where to look for things because you look for validation, right? That's the biggest struggle when you're new is you look for external validation, you look for someone else to tell you you're doing good, you look for someone else to tell you that you're doing it right or that you found, figured out the way. But the longer I've been doing this, the more I start to realize is, is that the way is an illusion. It's not, there's no the way, there's many ways, you know, and most people's styles that are striking and interesting or people that have really figured this out have taken bits and pieces of lots of different ways to do things and assembled them into a format or a recipe that has made their own signature look, their own signature style, or things that feel like their work. It's what makes them stand out. It took me a really long time to figure that out because I felt early on like you had to be good at everything. Like, I just had to please everyone, be good at everything. You know, everyone that came through the chair, I had to be an expert at everything that walked through the door. And that can be exhausting, but also almost impossible to really master any of it. You know what I mean? You're really, you're just trying to keep up with so many different things. And in this industry, the trends change so quick, especially in women's hair, I found that the trends were so volatile, back and forth. This year it's short, next year it's long, curly to straight, fringe to no fringe. It's crazy. You know, it just, it's almost like just nuts back and forth, you know, like trend to trend to trend. And so it's very hard to master any of that. But when I figured out that it was okay for me to be good at one thing that I loved deeply, the thing that I would do for free all day and be happy doing, that was when my career really changed. And that was when my success started to find me rather than me go out and chase it. And that was big. And I feel like that's the same as clientele. You know, your clients come to you for what you do, what you love, and you're going to do a way better job of the things that you love and would do for nothing than the things that you couldn't get paid enough to enjoy. Okay, so how many years were you in the salon doing clients before you became an educator? Oh, and, and I'm yeah. going to add to that. Please. You, you sound like a, a student. You've been a student. You're probably still a student. Still a student. Right? Still so a student. how long were you a student before you became an educator? When I first started out, um, 24 years ago, okay, and I was 19 years old and I got into hair to meet girls. I nice. was like, I thought, <laughs> I'll be straight. I'm square with you. That was kind of why I got into it. I, I worked at a restaurant where all, next to me was all these hair salons and all these stylists would come in at night and they were cool. All the guys looked like rock stars and all the girls were just like, I had a crush on every one. You know, they just had so much style and were so cool. And so I got into it for that and really quickly learned that that is a terrible, terrible reason to get into hairdressing. I didn't know anything. I didn't know style. I didn't even have my own sense of style. I, I, it took me a while inside of our industry to find my place and find, figure out who I am. You know, at 19, I think a lot of people go through that. But so when I was taking classes, I started out taking classes from almost everybody, and I took classes with lots of big people. But I realized early on in my career, it made you broke. It's very expensive doing your own education, and not every shop is invested in getting education for their staff. And I, mine wasn't, and I was constantly out doing all these things. So uh, I learned that if you work for a company 
you can get free education. You know, they'll teach you for free. I was like, great. So I started out early on with TG. Um, a lady uh, named Charlene who's out there in Vancouver taught me a lot of things about hair back then. That was during the bedhead phenomenon when everybody had really messy hair and it was about texture, texture, texture. And technical haircutting was really secondary. It was more about cut with your feelings and figure out how to create as much messy bedhead as you could. And then from there, I, I graduated. I started working with a company called Bumble and Bumble in the early days before they were with Estee Lauder and back when it was a fairly small organization. And that was very much cut with your eyes. You know what I mean? It was not about the tools, not about the techniques, about cutting with what you see creating shapes with what you see, interacting with your shape. So by the time it got to me where I was educating hair, I realized that I could do cool haircuts, but I had a really hard time putting a language or a voice to it. Like really, how do you teach this? How do you teach what's in your brain? Until I met a lady named Kathy Simon. Kathy Simon is one of the best educators and probably one of the best haircutters I've ever met in my life. She is uh, passionate about giving a language and a voice to haircutting, an understanding that you can talk through a haircut and if you can explain it in the same language and you can understand what those things mean and really understand not just with your mind but with your body and your actions that you can teach hair to anybody. And I really, really learned from her. She took me aside after my first class with them. Uh, they invited me out for Schwarzkopf Professional and they had said, hey, we'd like you to join our team. And I said, awesome, this sounds great. I came there, everybody there cut hair amazingly and I stood in the middle of the room just completely lost. And she knew it and she took me aside she's like you don't know what you're doing do you and I looked at her and instead of letting my ego be like oh yes I do screw this I'm out of here I was like I have no idea like I'm I have no idea how you do this and she's like okay I'll teach you and she did I worked for them for eight nine years she taught me everything I know about how to work with hair um, and then I take my own version of some of those things you know I don't agree with her on every everything but I took a lot of how to how to look at head shape how to understand hair cutting more fluently but more importantly how to communicate that to people so that they can understand it and that's uh, where a lot of people fall down in education so they're really good at doing, but they're not really good at explaining or sharing or giving the reason why so that someone else who doesn't know how to do that already can understand what they're doing and understand why they do it. That's the most critical. So when I was in education originally, it was teaching women's haircutting. Uh, this is about 10 years ago. I was in all the hair shows. I was at big stages all over. I thought this was really great. But as I went to more and more shows at that point in time, education seemed to be a real backseat at the show. It was really about how much of a scene can you make, how much noise can you make at your booth, how much free shit can you throw out, how can your outfit be super over the top, how can we do shit that actually scares the crap out of regular hairdressers. We weren't Just trying them, to get attention. We weren't making them less afraid, we were making them more. They were coming in to see us do this crazy over the top stuff that they all left and going like, I can't do that to my clients. Yeah. I don't, I'm not gonna. And education didn't seem to be really prominent. And so I fell out of love with it and I stopped. I was like, I don't wanna do that anymore. Um, and I started around that point is when I actually got into barbering. I got out of hairdressing, I got into barbering because barbering at its core is incredibly technical. It is uh, very, very specific. It is very challenging to master. And I was really in love with it. You know, I largely got into it because of my grandfather, which is, I think, maybe why I'm so obsessed with the history of it a little bit. Because really, for me, my love of barbering comes from the history, not just of barbering, but of my own family and of, of that time period where men put themselves together well, not so that they could be called a metrosexual or a modern man, but simply because that was what was expected at the time. It was about showing respect to yourself and to the people around you by putting yourself together well and I just became obsessed with that because as a hairdresser in the 90s I looked like Rufio from the movie Hook 
And my grandfather looked like a handsome gentleman every day of his life. And I thought, what happened there, man? Where'd that disconnect happen? And so that's when I got into that. And very fortunately, I was able to take so many of the skills that I learned teaching hairdressing. And I learned to bring it to barbering in a way that most barbers couldn't explain what I was doing simply because they had never been taught that. Right. Structural haircutting for a long time lived in the world of hairdressers and functional mechanical haircutting lived in the world of barbers. And in the last three, three or four years, we've seen a tremendous crossover. You know, we've seen people that are now, when I started out, my, my ambition, my goal was in fact to teach hairdressers how to be better barbers. Because I had learned barbering and I, I was really in love with it and I wanted to share that with my, my own community. And, but what had happened after a while was I understood that as this whole thing started to mush together, much of my life turned into how to teaching barbers how to be better hairstylists and how to understand structure and how to understand architecture and things like that of a haircut. And now I sit somewhere in the middle where I used to be this outcast where I wasn't really accepted by barbers and I wasn't really accepted by hairdressers anymore because hairdressers looked at barbers as cheap throwaway haircuts. You know what I mean? Why would you do that? That's terrible. That's not fashion, right? But the barbers would look with a kind of an animosity towards the hairstylist, like, well, I don't do that stuff, that's fancy hairstylist stuff. But now that you have blended in such a way that both are desperate to learn, where I used to be kind of an outcast of both, now I've kind of managed to become one of the people that seems to be a bit of a pillar of that. And, and now the opportunities that have opened up for me to go and share and teach have really informed the way I approach my brand, because our brand for a long time I worked for all these big corporate companies that inevitably would say something to me that broke my heart. I would be out teaching, sharing, empowering stylists, hopefully making them less afraid of what they don't know. And at some point when I was talking about how we can do this better and how we can grow this and the opportunities ahead of us, somebody with a suit on would come to me and say, well, that's really great, Maddie, but we're a product company, not an education company. And that is a really common thing to hear when you're an educator in this industry and it's heartbreaking because we all want to think that we do this with a level of altruism, but in many ways it's a format of marketing. Mm -hmm. So when I started my own company, when I left corporate hair... Victory. Victory Barber and Brand, yeah. When I started my own company, I always tell my staff... How long ago, by the way? uh, Well, I started my barber shops 10 years ago. We just launched the product line two years ago. Okay. When I go to shows, when, I, when I'm here with my staff, and I tell them, look, we're an education company that has a product line that helps us be an education company. And that's it. Like, I really believe that that stuff will take care of itself. I tell, I tell our guests, like, look, you know, we're here to teach you first. And if you want to support us and help us be here to give you free education that you deserve, then come support our brand and we appreciate it. But I, I never want, it, it taught me what not to do and what not to, how I don't want to be in the industry, you know? And that's, again, informed kind of by my grandfather. He had an incredible amount of integrity, and I think that's what integrity looks like, you know? I yeah. met Sam Via this weekend. Yeah? Sam For Villa, the first time? For the first time, okay. face-to-face. Yeah. Um, and, and here's something about Sam Via that really struck me. I walked up to Sam Via at the Naha Awards. Everybody looked really dressed up and really polished, and yeah. I looked like I had just climbed off a horse. Right. Because I just finished, and I didn't have time to go back. So I show up, and I look horribly un- underdressed. Mm. And I walk up, I'm like, there's Sam Via, I have to go say hi. So I walk up to him, and before I can even open my mouth, he's like, Maddie Conrad, how nice to meet you. And I swear to God, I freaked out a little bit inside. Like, I, just, I think a little pee came out, and I was like, <laughs> so here's, here's Sam and he comes up and he's like, I want you to know that I've been watching you for a long time and I 
really appreciate what you guys are doing for the industry, you and your barber friends. I think it's incredible. And he says, I just want you to know how much I respect it and how inspired I am to watch you guys. And I was like, thanks, Sam. Now here's the thing, I've been at a lot of these and that's usually the kind of things that icons will say to people to sound kind of magnanimous, you know what I mean? You know, I'm a big fan of your work, I, I'm, I'm a bigger fan of, no, no, I'm, I, you're fan, I'm a bigger fan of you, you know? They say this so that they can seem normal to everyone or you know, that, like, they, you know the kind and endearing things they say, but here's the thing about Sam uh, that was really mind blowing to me. The next morning after the Nahas at 9.30 in the morning, I was teaching the first class of the day before the doors to Naha, or before the doors to the show even opened. I thought for sure, right after Nahas, there was gonna be five people in this classroom. Right. And when I got there, there was a lot of people in the classroom. It was really great. When I looked up, Sam Villa was sitting in the room. Now here's the thing. That blew my mind. First of all, 9.30 in the morning after Nahas, Sam showed up. He put his money where his mouth was and he showed up. But not only did he show up, but I didn't see him look at his cell phone one time. I didn't see him distracted. I saw him with me, laughing along to my jokes that were stupid and terrible. You know, like nodding his head along in agreement and stuff. He was really engaged in that. And that, I think, really speaks to the integrity that a man like Sam Bia has. And having that and being able to model that for like somewhat younger guys like me that are trying to come up in this thing and start our own brands and look at guys like that is just so telling of the quality of character that has staying power in this industry. You know, yeah. you don't see a man with a huge ego that he's just trying to feed by being around a bunch of people that tell him how wonderful he is. He was all by himself and he came into my classroom and sat for almost two hours. He is a busy guy. Yeah. So for him to do that was extraordinary for me. And more importantly, is models exactly the kind of guy I want to be in this industry because it shows that it's possible to be successful and be good. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. All right, so the, I would say the, the worst enemy of the industry as a whole is consumer apathy, yes. right? And men care less in general about the way that they look than women, right? I, I think they like less, they, they like to get more for less. They expect to. They invest yes. less time, but they want to look good. And a lot of men are actually ashamed to let anyone know that they care yeah, very much about the way that they look, right? Yeah. Which I think is horrible. So how do we as a community encourage guys to, to, to give more of a shit about the way that they look and then of course consequently spend more time in the salon or barbershop? You know what has really driven the barber revolution and the way that it's come back so steeply in the last few years? Pride and dignity. Pride and dignity is at the core of it. What happened once a unisex hair salon took over in the 60s is slowly, we, we actually were cutting feminine shapes on men for a long time. Primarily oval shapes is because we knew how to do that. It's what we were trained to do. So we just did what we were trained to do. And if you look, almost overnight, at a point in the 60s when the Beatles and the Rolling Stones showed up, everybody started wearing oval haircuts. And some of them are verbatim, the exact same haircuts that the women were wearing. And that actually progressed into something as deep as the 80s. Remember the 80s hair metal thing? Yeah, These are these macho guys on stage yeah. that are rocking out looking like mall chicks, yeah. right? But they were sex idols. Like, this is it. This is how crazy things got. I wouldn't even call that androgyny. I would say that that pushed well past androgyny into the world of purely feminine. Yeah. And that was just what was socially acceptable at the time. That's what we were into. So here's the thing. What ended up happening is even when hair got shorter after a while and punk took over and bedhead and all that stuff, all the haircuts were still kind of short and oval. But what was more important is the way that we looked at men as a clientele. 
I owned hair salons before this and I can tell you with certainty that there was not a single thought given to how do I make this more comfortable for men. It was all purely service driven and most hair salons believe that they make the most amount of money on their biggest ticket items, but they, they charge the most amount of money on those biggest ticket items, but their biggest profit margin is actually on their smallest. Their big ticket items are colors and chemical work that costs them a ton to provide to clients and is getting more and more expensive by the day as the trends change into more and more expensive things. Balayage, bright blondes, pastels, these cost a fortune to provide clients. Not to mention the amount of time and blow drying and washing, your staffing costs are huge. You are making a sliver fine margin on those things. A man's haircut can take anywhere between 30 to 40 minutes, you know what I mean? It costs almost zero to provide aside from the time that they're there. The blow drying time is minimal. They're very, very loyal. They almost always buy products because as far as guys know, they're like, guys don't comparison shop. Guys don't look and go like, oh, well, I got a coupon for this, but I have to drive six miles away spending $10 of gasoline to get there. They're like, well, it's here. This is where it comes from, right? I, I, this is where I get it. We're opportunistic shoppers. So they didn't realize they were actually making most of their profit margin on their smallest services that they were not paying much credence to. I would go sit in a hair salon next to Gladys whose roller set is drying. Somebody else has got a pair of a bunch of foils under the dryer and I'm trying to figure out which is the least offensive magazine to read. I've got Good Housekeeping, Vogue, and Cosmopolitan as my choices. Right? We were an afterthought. We were usually wedged in between a process where we were able to like do a quick haircut so we could get back to our color work, you know? And it was a throwaway thing and we all knew it after a while. The service was never geared towards men, but more importantly, the feel-good portion was missing. Look good was fine, but the feel-good portion was absent. And guys had been at it so long they didn't realize that that was a thing. The barbershop comes along and suddenly there's this feeling of pride and dignity associated with looking good because what happened in the 90s, the tail end of the 90s, some magazine stood up and said, what like this group of men is now referred to as a metrosexual. And what that did is it didn't draw their sexuality into question the way some people infer. What it did was it diminished their masculinity. It wasn't about who you love or who, what your inclination is that way. It was entirely about masculinity is inherent thing that we all want to feel regardless of whether you're gay, straight, bi, whatever it is. We all want to feel still inherently masculine. And that stripped the last shreds of that away until somebody stood up and said, this is bullshit. And that's when that whole movement of hyper-masculinization happened. Guys started wearing beards, dressing like lumberjacks, even though they couldn't swing an axe. Lots of flannel starts to show up, you know what I mean? Yeah. The hipster guys, they called them. But really, it was about asserting our masculinity, and it was about not being an okay thing. I'm not talking the way people talk about it like it's toxic now. I'm talking about that inherent deep feeling of pride and dignity that a man has in healthy his Healthy masculinity, Very of healthy, and I think that's really important that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater when we start talking about toxic masculinity. We shouldn't erode masculinity, we should just inform a healthier version of it. And so that's what we talk about now. So when it comes down to the idea of looking at why this is happening now and, and how we maintain that, how we get guys to care about how they look, we need to take away the feminine nature of it and that concept that it is somehow effeminized and that metrosexual, the words like manscaping do us absolute horrible damage to the industry. Nobody manscapes, okay? That's not sexy, yes. right? Manscaping isn't sexy, no. I'm sorry, we groom. 
right? Grooming feels we, proud and dignified, but right. you call it manscaping. You because call it, we have pride and dignity, we yes, groom ourselves. But when you call a man pretty, right. you, are, you take away his dignity. Right. When you call him handsome, you infuse dignity in him. Right. The words we use, the way we, the attitude we take towards it is critical. Yeah. And this is the thing that it's, we're learning to correct that has already been damaged. We're working our way back. We're not trying to stop damaging. We've stopped damaging. We're just trying to get back. We yeah. did so much damage that we're trying to recover now. Right. And as an industry, hairdressing is, is still catching up. Got it. So cultural shift based on based on the way that, the, that we refer to things. I think that's great. Totally, yeah. totally. The way we communicate, the way we make them feel in the chair, in the shop, the way that we show them that they belong there yeah. is very important. And men always felt like they belong in the barber shop. Sure. So in the barber community, you've got, you've got a scale, as I like to think of it. You've got barbers who excel at the 20 minute haircut, which yeah. is very inexpensive, all the way up to the guy who cuts my hair, who, t who takes an hour and a half, yeah. and, and it's you know 100 something dollars. Yeah. And you've got everything in between there. Yeah. And I oftentimes hear from the barbers on the kind of short and cheap side of the scale, like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to get closer to the middle or, or maybe even towards the other side of the scale because my clients, you know, they, they just say they want it quick and cheap. How, how do they evolve into, you know, a more elevated type of service and price? I think the interesting thing that you touched on there is you're right. Uh, I, I don't really look at it as a scale uh, because that would indicate that one is higher than the other. My, my, my suggestion is that it's just, it's different. You know what I mean? It's more of a broad spectrum. Yes. Um, because what ends up happening is there is a client for every barber. You know, every type of barber, some guys just want that. And so what we're really breaking down and what we're really looking at is what has the largest percentage of men that fall in line with that style? You know what I mean? Uh, there's always going to be guys that don't care about their hair that want a $10 haircut. You know what I mean? There's always going to be a lot of those guys. And there's lots of those shops to service those guys. Yeah. But you get to decide what you want to be. And the thing I would say is that the number one thing that holds us back is fear. And the one thing I've learned in this life is everything that you want is on the other side of fear. Okay, it's about going at the things you're afraid of and doing it for yourself. When I opened my shop, my first shop, I had quit a successful hairdressing career where I was charging $150 for a haircut. I was booked six months in advance. Uh, I had two successful salons and I was done. I was burned out and tired and I was not in love with it anymore. And you know what happened? I opened a barber shop where I was gonna charge guys walking in off the street $35, which was twice as expensive as every other barber shop in my town. Barbering wasn't cool, this model hadn't been tested, everyone thought I was crazy, and after a while, as the bills started to mount up, I realized this was in fact the most expensive undertaking I've ever done. That shop cost me a half a million dollars and I did not have that money. And it was one of those things where I was like, I'm either going to be ruined by this or it's gonna be the best thing I've ever done in my life. And the funny thing is, is on the very first day, I remember the night before that, I didn't sleep for even five minutes. I was so nervous and I was so, I don't know what's gonna happen. And on the very first day, when we opened the shop, the, the landlord of the building, it was a really nice building that we put this thing in, it's brand new, and the landlord of the building showed up for a haircut with all of the guys in his family to show support us and I was like, wow. That's cool. And we managed to somehow make it through our first day and I thought, okay, day one's down, but those guys aren't gonna need a haircut tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and the next day, sure as we opened, there was a guy there standing there like, hey, I wanted to come check you guys out. Oh, cool, thanks. By the time the end of three months had happened, the first couple days were slow, first couple weeks were not crazy packed. By the end of three months, our wait time was over two hours. We added more and more barbers 
to the point where we had six full chairs, full-time barbers just working walk in, 10 hours walk in. a day, and the wait time was two hours. Wow. And we actually had to switch to an appointment model so that we could service people. And then before you know it, we had an idea where, well, all of the guys we had to turn away were walk-ins, and they usually came in after work. And so we thought, well, what's the problem with walking in and waiting in a shop for a long time? Mm-hmm. It's boring. Yeah. I mean, after about 20 minutes, you're like, oh, do yeah, I, yeah. I'm, you just kind of get fidgety and bored. So what I did is I actually opened a shop with a friend of mine. We opened a dive bar. And in the back of it is a two-chair barber shop that opens at night, right when all of the guys would be coming in after work. Because you don't want to wait in a barber shop for two hours. But if you're waiting in a bar for two hours, you're having a drink, yeah. you know, you're playing pinball, yeah. you know, you're having maybe something to eat and stuff, yeah. and you're actually pretty happy to do it. Yeah. Now when the guys come in for the walk-ins, it's a walk-in only shop. It's called St. Frank's. I named it after my grandpa. And, and where is this? Uh, it's in Victoria, BC, okay. uh, which is where we opened our first shop. And it's about two blocks away. So when guys come in, they're like, hey, you can you take appointment or you take walk-ins? They're like, sorry, we're full, but we have a walk-in shop two blocks away. They come, they sit in the bar. And now normally I'll work there and I love that shop. It's so much fun. I work at night from five till 10, 11 o'clock at night. And guys will come in and they'll actually ask if they have time to wait. And sometimes we'll be sitting there with an empty chair and the guy's like, hey, uh, can I come back in like 20 minutes? I just want to have like, so they're asking to wait now. And while they're waiting, they're also, you know, having beers and having a good time and spending money. And and it's, yeah, it's turned out to to be a really, really fun thing. I love it, I love it. So uh, what's different, What's, what's unique about Victory? You know, like what it was unique about it when we first started is not unique about it now because there was no model to copy when I started. When a 2010 barbering didn't look like it does now, you know, and, and I saw it as a different way. Our entire approach was really about creating an environment where men felt comfortable, confident, uh, empowered, and, and felt that dignity and pride just from the finish uh, that we put into things. You know, nothing was patinaed, nothing was fake. We were in a new building, which meant things in there needed to have a feeling of heritage and a feeling of, of old school kind of you know traditional barbering. So quality. A, yeah, yeah. Guys have a, a really, really sensitive bullshit meter. You know, you can see it like guys care much more about that stuff than women do, it seems. And so when you go into our shop and you hear a vinyl record playing, you know, old soul music playing on a vinyl record, when you see that the floors that are in there are over 100 years old already, all of the chairs that we used have been restored from the 1930s. You know, the mirrors that we had were actually window sashes that I found in a, in a reclamation yard that were from a hotel that had burned down in the 1800s. You know, all of these things that we put together were these old things that we felt like we were pulling out of the mud and it was about restoring these things to a place where people looked at them and thought they were cool again, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that was really what I was trying to do. It actually, the, the shop itself is, is a love letter to my grandpa and it tells a lot of the story of his life. So many of the little elements that I kind of almost didn't even intend to choose but ended up choosing, when I look at them now, really do tell the story of that era, that what he did with his life. Um, all of these little elements that really made it feel like history in there, you know what I mean? It, you can feel the history when you walk in the shop, you can smell it in the air, you can feel it in the things you look at, see and touch. And we focused really importantly on that motto of look good, feel good. It was not just about doing good haircuts. That was really important, but it was about creating a feeling for our clients that made them want taller out the door than they walked in. You know, I've, I've had moments in that shop where the most special thing that I've ever achieved as a barber had nothing to do with stage work, awards, or haircuts. It was an interaction I had with one client that changed everything about the way I look at barbering. And it wasn't about his haircut. It was about the way he felt when he left that place, you know? He came in, he was an older guy, one of my favorite clients. He came in really heavy, didn't need a haircut at all. 
he needed a friend to talk to, you know? And as barbers, we are that. We are much more than just the person cutting your hair. We really are, in some people's lives, their friend that they can talk to, that person that's impartial, that can hear the things they need to get off their chest, that can lend an encouraging word or a shoulder to cry on when you need it or something, just so that they feel that somebody hears them, that somebody sees them, you know, and somebody has their best interest at heart. Yeah, you know, somebody I mean, cares. So few people, or so many people out there have so few people in their lives that they feel that way towards. And you as a barber have an opportunity to be that for somebody. And I think that's one of the most special things about our craft. I love it. So if, there's, if you could wave a wand and change anything about the industry as a whole, yeah. what would it be? Instagram. You would get rid of it? No, I wouldn't get rid of it. I'd change the way we see it. Yeah, How? I think it. I think it has a really great place in this industry, but I think people have put far too high a value on it and what it does. I actually... Um, really quick, did you notice maybe four months ago that Instagram tried for a period of time to change the profile yeah. at the top? Sure. Where they, uh, um, it, uh, you know, they shrunk the size of the following, right? Yeah. It only happened it for... for it only happened for like two weeks. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And then it went back. I think, I think it's hard because I think we think that uh, social media and, and online uh, apps and things like that should be somehow, uh, you know, um, what's what I'm looking for, benevolent. But they're not. They, they serve their own purpose. They're a business. They serve their own purpose. So, so I think we have to understand that we play by their rules at all times. Now here's the thing. Um, followership is nonsense. It's not, I mean, it's great. It's really, I, and to all the people out there that are following me, thank you for that. I appreciate you all. Um, I have never paid for a follower. I've never occurred to me that that would be a thing that would be rewarding because I know, I would know. Why would I do that? To show everyone else how cool I am? Who cares? All that stuff is nonsense. The truth be told, you don't need to impress other barbers on Instagram and stuff. I resent people referring to themselves as influencers. Um, I, I've been referred to as that, and I always take time to correct people and go, look, I'm popular on Instagram. I'm not an influencer. Because influence is an interesting thing. It denotes that ideas come from outside of something and penetrate into something that you think. But Instagram, the way it's designed, is not that. It's an echo chamber of your own ideas. All the things that you already think of are cool. That's all it is. And what it does to trends, what it does to the idea of influence, where we would traditionally look at places like Young Hollywood, we would look at fashion designers, we would look at all these other places. We're not looking there anymore. All of the guys that I look up to as I think heroes in this industry have tiny little Instagram followings. And you know what, who cares? They are brilliant at what they do. But I see so many people who make it their prime objective to simply grow a following as if that is the end objective of all of your talents should be just to have a big following and once you had, you've made it. It's not that. I have worked so hard and it seems like the larger my following grows, the harder I'm working. I just had a lovely conversation about you, Sam. It's been great to meet you this weekend. Now, there's a thing that everybody seems so desperate to get attention online that it becomes that thing about attention and it's turning into the new digital version of what hair shows used to be. Make as much noise as you can, do the most outlandish things, get the most attention possible. There's just no substance. And when people aren't sharing anything of substance, it becomes flat and it really starts to bury everything and we just become this hollow, hollow, uh, you know, society online. And the, the real problem with that is, is I see people treat their Instagram like a magazine. Um, and I actually endorse that. I say, treat it like a magazine, make sure that it's a magazine that's worth reading. Okay? 
make a magazine that's worth reading. A lot of people will uh, post something like it's like they, they treat their magazine like it's Cosmo or like it's an OK magazine or it's just a bunch of you know selfies in a bathing suit, whatever. Fine, it's a swimsuit edition. Cool, that's what you are. That's what you're conveying to people. I see a lot of hairdressers in this industry treat their magazine like it's one of those hair magazines that you only see in hair salons. The ones that only have pictures of haircuts, which is great. But the problem is when's the last time you picked one up? Is it worth reading? Only when you want a haircut. And so they wonder, they struggle, they do beautiful work, they struggle, they, why am I not getting a following? They judge themselves by this smaller following, but they just fail to realize that it's not that your work isn't beautiful, it's incredible, it's just not very interesting to read, right? And that's really it, we desire to be social, but that's not social, that's just marketing. Social is interaction, it's engagement. I love talking to people that I meet online. I love making friends with people through Instagram, but more importantly, I love meeting them in person so I can fill in the last 10% to see if they're real. We get to know people through social media these days and I think that's remarkable. That's why I wouldn't get rid of it. I actually really love it. I love getting to know all these people and, and making friends on social media, but you're making real friends once you put that last 10% in and meet them in person to see how they are in real life. We, we get rid of all of that awkward get to know you phase because we already know you, but I want to see if I know you. Yeah, I right? call it closing the loop. Great way to put that. Yeah. I'm gonna steal that from you. Oh yeah, you can have it. But it really is that, right? I mean, I, I kind of love that. I love that we have this social media and we have this ability to communicate with each other. I just resent people using it for marketing and then judging themselves or feeling down or trying to create some sort of social hierarchy based on this little number on an app that has its own agenda to yeah. fill. Amen, brother. All right, so we have a segment at the end of our episodes that uh, I credit Jacob Kahn for it for giving me the idea. He's hilarious. I, call, I love Jacob. <laughs> he's Kahn. the he's the best, right? I really love that guy. So I call it Jacob Kahn's hair horror stories. Hair horror stories. Hair horror stories. So let's have your best ones. Oh wow! They could okay. be on stage. They could be in the salon. They could be with a a bad coworker, horrible I, uh, client. I was at the, this actually started out as a horror story turned into a triumph. I, I was at the BTC show this year. Uh, it was in San Antonio, Texas. And there's a guy that had been following me on social media, a real sweet guy, uh, always commenting, always loving my stuff and stuff. He sent me a message, oh man, it's my dream to have you cut my hair one day, kind of thing. I, I know I'm gonna get you to cut my hair one day. And I'm usually with these guys, I'm like, okay, probably. I'm like, sure man, sounds great. You know, like, yeah, anytime. But really you're like, you're never gonna see this guy. So here I am uh, at the San Antonio show, text me, I'm coming to San Antonio, man, we come I'm like, okay, yeah, we're, we're looking for models, come to the model call. And he, and he gets up at the model call, and I'm like, oh, he's a really handsome guy. I'm like, I'm talking to him face to face just like you, and oh man, yeah, no. Yeah. You, you recognize yeah, him and everything? Yeah, well, not, not really, I, I kinda did, I knew okay. who he was, and, and I looked, I'm like, wow, well, right on, like you're really, in person, you're quite handsome. I'm like, cool. And he's my style, I had a little bit of a beard going, a tight, clean, classic haircut. I'm like, yeah, oh, I can totally fuck with that, sure. So I'm like, hey man, great, yeah, you, you're gonna be my man stage model and I was like and he's like oh I'm gonna come on main stage 3,000 people in front of main stage and he turned around and as he's walking away my jaw just like dropped and what? I was like and you know how some guys in the back of their head they, they have like a, like kind of things that look kind of like a stack of sausages right and it's like <laughs> like you got these big indentations and you're just like oh Oh my God, what am I, this guy didn't have that. He had a whole burrito, like a burrito, like one massive it's, dent. It's like huge, neck fat. Yeah, yeah, huge bulge out of the back and you couldn't see it from the front. I was like, oh, like, oh my God, what have I done? I'm like, I'm gonna do this in front of 3,000 people. Like, uh, what the, 
Anyway, so, so hold on. Yeah. I, I have detailed questions. So he, so he had hair covering yes. yeah. the, the burritos, yeah, yeah. and you could still tell. Oh my God, yeah. You could have had six oh inches God. of hair on that thing. You would have seen. It was. Cra- I was like, wow. And so after I calmed down for a second, I was like, panic. I like right fear through the center of my heart. And I thought, okay, God, what am I going to do here? This is going to be in front of three thousand people going to see this. And I realized, this is the man that walks into your barbershop every day, like. You don't see perfect models. You don't see all these guys you like that would look good if you put a paper bag over their head and beat them with a stick and people would still be like, that looks amazing. You're just, this guy's incredible. I know a lot of people pick that for stage, but I realized maybe the most valuable thing I could do is get out on stage, be 100% transparent and honest and say, I don't know how this is gonna turn out, but I've seen a lot of these, have you? Yeah. And everybody was with me on it and I did it and I didn't make them feel weird about it because it was his and I knew that and it was cool and I was like, this is what I would do and I tried it out and it kind of worked and I just, what I did is I took it and I said, I'm not going to keep trying to hide this because he can't. So I'm just going to skin it right up to there. I'm going to build my haircut on top of that. I'm going to treat this like it is the most normal thing in the world. Yeah. And I talked to people about the importance of not reacting, having bedside manner and understanding that this is these people's real cranial topography. This is their life. Don't make them feel weird. Don't make them feel like it's something they need to cover up. Just let it be what it is. Make them not feel awkward and they won't. And by the end of that thing, I cut this nice little haircut on this guy and all the people got up. I was on stage with eight other artists that all stood and explained their haircuts and their models stood up and they walked up to the front and they posed like models and they looked cool and awesome. And I talked about what I did and my guy got up and he turned around and he hugged me. And everybody on stage, you heard the whole room like, oh, and you heard this like tear come out. Some people were just like, and I'm like, oh shit, this shit's emotional. And he just hugged me and everyone else is out there posing. And he just stood there and hugged me and said, that was the best haircut I've ever had in my life. He hadn't even seen it. Right. He could, there's he no mirror. He had matter. no idea. It didn't matter what it, it was like. entirely about the experience we yeah. crafted for him and him being able to be up there and for me to be just transparent and share yeah. like this shit happens. Yeah. This is real barbering. You made his back neck fat okay. Totally. Yeah. I made it okay. Yeah. yeah. I made it the back neck me too movement. Like just all together. You know what I, I mean? Love I have back neck too. You know, like it was great and it was just, it felt amazing. So it started out as a horror story, but it turned into a triumph. Yes. Horror story averted, which are always the best horror stories, of course. Completely. That was an excellent one. That's probably top two or three, Donovan. What do you say? I mean, that was good. Yeah. All right. Um, any last words for the community? I first off, thank you for having me on this thing. Honestly, um, pleasure I, is mine. I really, more than anything, enjoy trying to connect with people in this industry that that. Uh, in a way that hopefully will make them feel a little less afraid or a little more like they belong here. You know, when I say that coming to hair shows and things like that is like seeing your friends from summer camp, it's because we all get to come together and feel a little less weird. You know, some of us, especially the passionate ones and the kids that are doing cool stuff, I mean, we are deeply weird to our, a lot of our friends, to a lot of our community. We're, we're so passionate and crazy about stuff sometimes that people don't get it. But when you come together, the hairdressers that get it and they come together, they make us feel less weird and that's what we call community. You know, and so I deeply desire to help strengthen that and be part of that community. So getting to come on stuff like this, talk to y'all, and just share some of my some way I feel about stuff, you know, is a real blessing. So thank you, thanks oh, for that. Like it's please, it's please. awesome. And the honor is mine. Thanks to everybody that's supporting our tiny brand. Uh, and where can people to, find it? Well, now you can find our brand, especially online. Uh, we, we we do direct in in the United States, so you can buy it uh, online through our website. Uh, it's www.victorybarber.com. You can apply to be a stockist, carry it in your shop. We got almost 500 shops. 
cops carrying us now, which is just blowing my mind. It's incredible, and it's, it's allowed us to travel around and teach and share. Uh, again, we're primarily an education brand, so that's what I want. I want to use the product line to help us get out and share with people and get in front of as many people as possible and help them be uh, enthusiastic about barbering and help them really feel like they've got some strong skill set moving forward. And, uh, and you're also able to come to the shows. We're at most of the shows. Uh, reach out to us. We ship stuff directly. If you want to get involved in shows, you want to uh, have us come out and teach, you can also apply for us to come teach in your shop and, and uh, put together events and stuff like that. We're, we're all over the world this year. We're, we're launching in Korea, Japan, and wow. the UK this year. Amazing. So yeah, things have really, really blown up for us and, and it's it just unbelievably exciting. So thank you, everyone that's bought our product, everyone that's supported us. Uh, it, it really means the world to me. I don't take it for granted, not one bit. So they can find you uh, on Instagram, Matty Conrad, yes, right? Matty Conrad. I should have come up with a cooler Instagram name than that, you know? <laughs> Like, no, I know. When I, I was, I remember I was presenting an award last year, standing next to Hair God Zito, and I'm just like, <laughs> I have not got a cool enough Instagram name. I, I just use my own name, so yeah, yeah. So cool. it's at Maddie Conrad, or you can follow Victory Barber and okay. Brand online at Victory Brand Products. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Thanks, brother. Man, thank Appreciate you. It. What a joy, man. This is a good time. Thank you for that. Hey guys, I'm back. In case you didn't catch it, I'll put in the show description on your podcast player how to enter the Maddie giveaway. Next week, we'll also be giving away something super cool. Drum roll, please. An Apple iWatch Series 4, which is the newest one. For a chance to win, write a review on the Apple Podcast app or Stitcher.com for Droid users. If you don't want to write a review, then just hit the stars. If you've already written a review on the Apple Podcast app, then write one on Stitcher.com so your name is in the bag twice. The review has to include your exact Instagram handle so I know who you are. Make sure you're following Salam Republic on Instagram and me, Love Eric Taylor, on Instagram. And then I put your name in the bag. Each week I reach into the bag, I pull a name, I announce the winner. You have to be listening. If I call your name, DM me so you can send me your mailing address and I can send you your stuff. For complete details, go to salonrepublic.com. Next week's episode will be a conversation with educator Adina Das. Until then, have a great week.